Welcome to the Lifehouse Church Podcast. Lifehouse is a church that exists to invite all people to live an uncommon life by following Jesus, doing life together, getting in the game, and leaving a legacy. We hope that today's message helps you grow as a follower of Jesus, gives you perspective to see yourself and others differently, and inspires you to make a difference in the world around you. Now, let's get to this week's message. Oh man, I love coming back because I remember this church before when it was a dream before it was birthed. I remember Pastor John and Kristen, and I was wondering, maybe y'all could take a minute and get on your feet and shout like you've never shouted for your lead pastors, Pastor John and Kristen. Come on, can you thank them for what they birthed? Come on, like you've been delivered here, like you found Jesus, like your life is better because of Lighthouse. Come on, real loud, let them see how much you love them. We love you both, both very, very much, and your church loves you. You are great shepherds. You are great shepherds. Uh, the thing I love about Pastor John is he doesn't need much to survive. I feel like he could make it anywhere doing anything. Uh, the most practical guy driving the oldest car uh, I've ever. I said to him today, I said, man, this car is going to be here forever, isn't it? He said, yeah, brother. Uh, love you, man. Love you, Kristen. So grateful for you guys. Casey and I love you so much um, and so grateful for you. Uh, I, I, but I love you and I love being here and I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to speak into your life because uh, when I heard about this vision years ago, uh, it's always great to come see the, the amazing child that was birthed from the vision that God put in a man, you know, and his wife. And, uh, and so this is truly a miracle every time we have to come back. But I want to ask you a question, but first I want to kind of give you a little bit of a synopsis. Um, I, I don't like being wrong personally. I don't like being corrected when I'm wrong, and I don't like admitting that I'm wrong. I don't mind telling you that you're right, but I don't like telling you that I'm wrong. Anybody with me? Right? You're like, I don't mind telling you that you were right. It's like, oh, yeah, you were right, but you don't want to say, yeah, you're right. No, I was wrong. You, you don't want, I got four kids, four boys. Caden, my 11-year-old, is actually with me. I got an 11-year-old. Uh, I've got a 9-year-old, Rylan. I've got a 7-year-old, Makai, and a 5-year-old, Asher. And uh, just recently, we just spent two weeks on the road at state baseball tournaments. So I actually coached my nine-year-old for the 10U Little League State Championships, and we went down there to Lynchburg for a week. And then from that tournament, we went from Lynchburg to D.C. for my 11-year-old. They made it to states as well, so we were there for another week. Now, we're RVers. Do I got any RVers in the place? Anybody at all? This church needs Jesus, because this is two services straight. I know, I know one couple in this church. I'm an RVer. Huh? Oh, they're one couple. I know, one couple. <laughs> Pop up, that counts. That's hardcore RVing. I'm a glamper. I'm not a camper. You know, everybody's like, well, you don't like, I know, we shower in that thing. We, everything is in there. We got TV. We got PlayStation. So that's still camping, all right? But we were, in, uh, we were going from Lynchburg to Springfield, Virginia, and, you know, there's not a lot of campgrounds near where we were going, so it was like a 20-minute drive, so we had to stay at a state park, and anybody who's a camper knows state parks are on level, and so you got to be a little bit tactful, and so we were in a state park, but also, there's three things you need when you're camping. You need sewage, you need water, and you need electric. Now, you can go without sewage, because you can just, you know, kind of dump your RV as you leave a couple days later, but uh, we were in this uh, camp, and we had three days where we had all of it, then there was going to be three days where we only had sewage and water, which wasn't, a, or water and electric, which wasn't a big deal because air conditioner work, you could still fire up the PlayStation if you wanted, and uh, you had all the you know necessities. But in that, I was I was thinking, man, I might head to the shower house, you know, save some water. Uh, and we were on our way to a store before we were going to dinner one night at my 11 year old state tournament. All the kids are talking, and my wife and I are talking. And I was like, all right, go to the store. I got to get this and this. And I named two things. And the reason I give you all the details of this story is because I like details when I'm telling stories. Anybody like details when somebody's telling you a story? All right. So now, that, oh, claps, great. So now you have context to what I'm trying to tell you. So I'm on my way, a million things going on. We've been on the road for two weeks. My 11-year-old's in his tournament. We're on the way to dinner. But before we go to dinner, we're going to the French place called Target. And so we were stopping by, I, I know, I hate big box stores because I feel like I got to walk forever to get to anything. You know, my wife loves them. I I just, I just as soon order everything, you know. But we're on the road, we're on the way to Target, and um, I tell my wife what I needed, and we're getting close, and I said, all right, babe, I'm going to hop out the car. I forget what I needed. Anybody ever there? You forget completely why you went to the store, and you're thinking, oh, man. I grew up around D.C., so the roads, they are what they are. And Google Maps, they, they take care of business. You don't have to do nothing but listen to the voice. And I get to the store, and I'm thinking, I had nothing else to do other than to come to the store, get two items before we went to dinner. And my wife looks at me, and she, we both remember the one, but we cannot remember the second. My five-year-old, sitting behind my wife's seat, goes, you needed shower shoes, right? Now, I'm fully aware 
I wanted shower shoes just in case I'd use a bathhouse. I don't want to get back to Virginia Beach with some odd warts on my feet or whatever you want to call them, right? So I don't go into public showers ever. And if I had to, I was going to make sure I had some shoes on, which thank God it all worked out. But my five-year-old is telling me what I forgot. Now, I quickly felt like I was fast forwarded to be, you know, 30, 40 years from now where I'm realizing that my children are slowly going to know more than me very fast. Not because when you're older, you don't know, but when your kids are older, they think they know, right? Anybody with me? I don't have teenagers yet, but I heard it's coming, right? I got one getting ready to get sixth grade. Dads don't know much. Moms don't know anything. They don't know much. Dads don't know anything. The kids are starting to gain in their increase in knowledge. But the reality is my five-year-old nailed it. He was right there in the middle of it, and he was saying, Dad, this is what you forgot. But I don't know about you, but in my life, have you ever looked back at a situation or decision, something that was difficult, and you realized it was only hard because of your pride? Had nothing to do with the situation. Had nothing to do with the transition. Had nothing to do with who was right. It just had everything to do with the fact you were wrong. Right? Now, that wasn't a pride situation. I was thankful my five-year-old had a better memory than me at that point. All he had to do was worry about watching what was on TV and thinking about dinner. So he didn't have, I'm take, completely taking his credit away, all right? That's what pride does. You completely disarm the people that helped you. But you didn't have to be that hard, but sometimes we just don't let things go, you know? It, it doesn't matter really what we're doing. I mean, let's be honest. We all want the byproduct of humility, but none of us want to live the life that is humble. We all like the byproduct of it. It's called human nature. All of our fights, quarrels, arguments, and gossip, they're raindrops from a cloud called pride. Now, I want to take you to the side of this. We're reading about James, and we're in this series, and we're going to talk about James chapter 4, and what he's talking about is quarrels among you, fights, being in love with the world. But all of these things are just bigger pictures of a cloud called pride. These are all byproducts of pride. If you fix the one thing, the other things will fall closely behind. These last two weeks, I think that for me, I learned that no matter how much you think you know as a parent, I still have a wife that is smart and children that are smart, and I am one person in a car full of six. No matter how much I think I know, I realize I don't know what I think I know, and because of that, it hurts my pride. It hurts my pride a lot. The more I'm around other people, the more I realize I need other people. And what James is trying to teach us in James chapter 4 is James is the brother of Jesus. And you wonder, where was he at this whole time? Where is he at? When not, now he's just coming on the scene. He's coming on the scene because he saw his brother resurrected. That will do something to you. Now, when you think about all the people that saw this and the way Jesus resurrected, and we know he's real because he's changed our life, we get that. We have that personal experience. But when you think about the evidence in Scripture of Jesus being resurrected, James is one of the greatest pieces of it because he was his brother. His brother was the one, James was having to live up to the brother who was walking on water, and James is the one having to get the lifeguard to save him when he couldn't swim, right? And so he's thinking, well, this guy thinks he's everything. And I'm not saying that that was his thought, but we don't hear a lot about it until you get to the post-resurrection and you get the post-ascension where Jesus goes back into heaven. And here comes James writing, writing these these passionate Christian principles to a group of Jews who thought they knew Jesus, but they were starting to stray from the faith in their own little ways because they were going to church to advance themselves and not to advance the gospel. And James is saying, you have to understand what I'm telling you because this king is real. He's a resurrected king, but there are some things that if you don't do, your life is going to be destroyed. And he's starting to see these frailties in the church, and he's trying to address it with passion to help them see you got to change the things that are going on or it's going to get ugly quick. So James is writing a passionate plea. This book, if you read it wrong, could feel like a bunch of rules and somebody throwing a hammer. If you read it right, you see God is pleading with his people to humble themselves and to come to him in a different way because he has something great for their life that they don't have to micromanage to get, you know? So let's chart in James chapter 4, verse 1. This is what it says. And this is James, and he's asking rhetorical questions because he knows the answers. But he says, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you, but you don't have. And you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous. Everybody say jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away. It's funny how it doesn't say you fight and wage war to get it. You fight and wage war to take it away. Because jealousy is not about you getting. It's about them not having, right? So he's, he's, he's declaring something here. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Now, before I go any further, some of y'all may I've been praying about this for two years. Yeah, you know what? It's not God's desire yet, but maybe it's not God's desire at all. And even when you ask, you don't get it. Here we go. Thank you, James, because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You see, what James is describing is what I like to call a civil war within you. The civil war within you is your flesh 
versus your spirit. Your flesh is telling you this is what I want, but your spirit is saying that ain't right. You can't do this, man. You can't be at this place of dysfunction. And James is trying to help the church understand this. The only way, I want you to repeat this, say the only way my needs will be met is by God. Now, let me explain something. Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, there's a scripture that it says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And delight simply means to take pleasure in. It's actually an action. It's an action word saying you have to choose to delight yourself in God. Now, this doesn't mean delight yourself in the Lord, and then he'll reward you with the desires of your heart. It's not what it says. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So say, when you delight yourself in God, the things that you desire are going to be the things that he desires. And they're going to be great because you don't know what you need. You don't know what's best for you. You just, all we need to know is that if we delight, take action, take pleasure in God, he's going to put the things in us that we desire. And those things will be the things that he desires. And we get the things that he desires be greater than what we desired. And we're never going to look back because our pleasure is in him and not in the things that we think we desire. So let me give you a 30,000 foot point for this to help you understand it. God's desires in us follow our desire for him. You don't have to worry about what God's got. I get this question all the time. What do you think? Or I used to a lot more. What do you think God has for my life? I don't know what God has for your life. I'm not Santa. I'm the elf. Like, I'm just a messenger. I don't have any idea. I'm not God. Why are you so worried about it? You're never going to miss it. There's nowhere in Scripture somebody just missed what God had. No, they tell God no. They never, he never doesn't tell them, well, you didn't, you didn't walk the right maze. You didn't do the right thing. You didn't, you didn't slap twice and say the magic word, and so you don't get my desire. No, he's saying, you didn't ask me. And when I did tell you, you told me no because it wasn't what you desired. Now, I can tell you when people are walking outside of what God has. It's not hard to see. Because you see friction, you see constant trouble, you see constant, constant stinginess, you see this constant pushback of what God's actually trying to do in their life. And you know, my question would be, maybe the friction you have in your life isn't Satan pushing against you. Maybe it's that you're not actually doing what God's asking of you. His desires will become our desires when he's our desire. How many of you have ever gotten full when you're starving for a meal and you think of a good meal and all of a sudden you're like, hmm. I'm full. Now, I don't know why, but whether I'm coming off of a fast or I'm just hungry, there's one, the first food item I always think of, and I don't even eat it a lot, I don't even eat at this restaurant yearly probably, is the cheese fries from Outback. Now, why, I don't know. But there's something about the way they cook their fries, and that cheese, it must come from a cow straight from heaven. The bacon must come from a pig straight from heaven. And then the God-loving sauce that they make is just, it's something different, right? And so when I'm starving, and when I'm done eating it, I don't feel good. You're never going to feel good. If you feel good when you get done eating that, you need to change your diet. You should not feel good when you're done eating that. You'll feel good while you're eating that, but the minute that starts to digest, you feel like you need to take a shower because you just feel it oozing from your pores, right? But I love cheese fries from out back, and there's something about that dip that takes me right into the feet of Jesus in my own physical feeling of food. Something like a good steak. There's something like a good steak on a hot plate and you cut that baby open and it's got that beautiful, perfect coloring and you eat it and it's just like everything has, this steak has been born for you to eat it, right? But I don't know about you, but I don't feel full. I feel more hungry after thinking of the things that I long for, right? The things that nourish me. See, we can't get nourished from our memory. It comes from our current experience. So when we try to rely on the memory of what God's done in our life, and the miracles that he did in the past, you're wondering why you're not nourished now. It's because his desires is for you to desire him, and those things will nourish you. So how do we apply this? You have to desire God's nourishment, and his desires will nourish you. Saying, God, you're my nourishment. And then the things that he puts into your life will fill you in ways that you never could before think, ask, or imagine. And what James is trying to tell the church is, listen, the things that are going on amongst you, the fights, the quarrels, the backbiting, the gossip, the hatred, the darkness, the things that are trying to come at you have nothing to do with the fact that you need to be better at not talking about others. It has everything to do with the fact that you're not desiring the things God desires. You don't have the humility to bow down and to recognize who he is and what he's actually done. You're thinking that it's come through something you've done. You're thinking that your faith has now been achieved at a certain point. So in James chapter 4, verse 4, this is what he says to him. He says, you adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? 
I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And what he's explaining here is that you can't try to be successful in everything in the world with your desires and expect to please God. Now, God can make you successful. He can position you to be successful, but you can't live like you are trying to attain something in the world, but yet say you are surrendered to God. Those things are at uh, a great tension with one another. And he says, Don't you think the, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Opposes is actually a military term that means resist. So what it's saying is that God resists the proud. So in your life, a lot of times, I think that we feel like we can't get ahead. We feel like no matter what we do, we just can't get ahead in our finances. No matter what we do, we can't get ahead with our job and our promotions. No matter what we do, we can't get ahead with our children. Anybody ever feel like no matter what you do, you are fighting against the grain, right? I'm gonna tell you a little bit here because I think all of us could lift both of our hands if we're being honest. We, there's always places where we feel like we can't fight ahead. And what is the church? As a church, that's why we say, oh, Satan's trying against me, but God is faithful, right? We celebrate Satan more than I think we give glory to God a lot of times in the church. We always talk about our fight more than our victories, you know? Oh, brother, Satan is just, he's got one out for me, but God! Well, you're so passionate about what Satan did, but what, but God, what? Right? What? Finish the sentence. How's your week, man? Man, God has been faithful. He is faithful. He is loving. He is kind. He has been so generous to me and my family. He has went before me every day. He has helped me walk through the shadow of death and walk on the other side with a smile and nice Oakleys on, looking back over the darkness that tried to take me out in Jesus' name. Oh, no, oh, brother, the, the, the Satan has got it out. He's resisting me today. Have you ever thought if God opposes the proud that maybe it's not Satan that's resisting you, but it's the Spirit of God trying to keep you from harm? Because as a Christian, we make it as if we're in a fight with Satan and that God is our source. But what Scripture tells me is that as a Christian, your fight's not against Satan. Your fight is with God. And if we have opposition, maybe it has nothing to do with darkness, but everything to do with light that's guiding us. And I think we have this thought, well, the harder it is, the better God's in it, the more he's in it, the more faithful he is. I don't know where that is in Scripture. Because what Scripture tells me is that he's taking burdens from me. If he's taking burdens from me, then why is it every time we do something for God, we act like burdens have been added? We have this flip-flop of Christianity that isn't the reality of what the gospel is trying to teach us. And James is trying to tell the people, you are fighting battles God's never put in front of you, and you've got stuff going on that God's not asking you to do, but you need to walk in humility. And until you understand that God opposes the proud, you'll never realize that your opposition isn't darkness, it's God, because he's trying to keep you from something that's going to destroy your life. You fought so hard for that promotion, now you're miserable because you're missing all your kids' stuff and you're, you don't really care for the money and you don't like the people that you're around and you're wondering why you feel out of place. It's not the people's fault and it's not your schedule's fault. It's because you pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until you resisted God and he gave in to you what you were asking for. Now you're miserable and you're thinking, well, God, why do I feel like this when you gave this to me? And he's saying, I didn't give it to you. You pushed me out the way until you got what you wanted. different. It's different. Maybe the resistance isn't darkness fighting against everything that God's trying to do. Maybe it's you fighting against everything that God's trying to do. You know why this is hard? Because you've dreamt your whole life of being a recording artist, and God doesn't have that for you. You're thinking, but hey, 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 it's like, that's great. This ain't American Idol. God's got something better. God had, you want to be a recording artist, God has you owning the biggest record company in the history of mankind, but you ain't willing to surrender to him. So you're going to go ahead and try to make your recording artist with somebody who ain't big yet, and he's got something bigger, but you just don't want to get to the right avenues to get it. You see what I'm saying? Every desire in my life is being fulfilled in a capacity I can't even begin to explain to you because I've just surrendered. There are times I don't, mm-hmm. And the minute I start to feel that resistance, I've grown enough to know now, like, oh, this is not the resistance that's the devil. This is me, and I need to surrender. God opposes the proud. I would give up everything in my life because I know what it's like to, to be doing what God doesn't ask me to do. You know, 2011, I had worked at a five-star restaurant, and I was a valet because I just wanted to drive the cars. I didn't really want to do all the weight service and all that. 
And one particular day, I was fasting because I needed to hear God. And God had already told me what he wanted to do with my life, but I didn't like that. And so I was going to fast until I got, it's almost like you spin the wheel, mm-mm, fasting. Let's spin that thing again. <laughs> it's like in 2019 when I was pastoring Palms Church, God said, hey, I'm going to plant the second campus, or 2018, 2019. And I said, all right, great. In the middle of the night, he spoke it to me. I woke up the next day. I told my wife what he was doing. I said, I'm going to fast and pray and really just get vision on this. And God said, why are you fasting? I already told you what to do. Don't fast for that. I already told you that. You see what I'm saying? I don't like what God said, so I'm just going to fast and really get in spiritual. God's like, no, that that ain't what I asked you to do. It's what you feel good doing, but it's not what I've asked you to do. Is fasting important? Yeah, you need fast. So I'm fasting after God already told me what to do, and I was a valet at this five-star restaurant. And they gave us lunch every day. And I think this particular day, it was chicken finger day. And nobody wants to fast on chicken finger day. That's the day that you don't want to make. You want to make sure the best day of the week is chicken finger day. You ain't had chicken fingers, so you had them at a five-star restaurant. I'm just saying. And so one of my managers comes out. He said, hey, we have a uh, catered meal down at this particular uh, part of the property. I need you to come help me clear it. So it was the owner of the restaurant and some marketing people that had flown in from New York and some other people were down at this catered meal in this, in this house. And when you walked in there, it looked like Willy Wonka's uh, because it was all this beautiful food that had been layered. And I mean, it was like, it's neon green and pink and yellow and that's like mashed potatoes, you know? Like this is, <laughs> here, is a, here is a bite-sized salmon cake with gold in it, you know, truffles. I don't know why people like truffles. I personally think they're disgusting, but they're expensive. And so if I could find some, I would be in a truffle business. You know, people like them. And so you go and you see all this food that doesn't look like anything you and I would normally recognize, but when you put your lips on this stuff, it's like the next level. It is a flavor profile that you don't know how they ever came out of this particular vegetable, fruit, piece of meat. It's just, it's unbelievable. And so I go down to help clear this food out, and it looks like nobody's touched it. It's, a, it's, a, it's fit for a king. And this beautiful kitchen is packed with all this amazing food. I, I'm, I'm talking layers and layers of stuff that would thousands of dollars in food. And my manager looks at me, he says, you eating yet? And he's like, I was like, no. And he said, eat. And it was just me and my manager basically saying, bro, just have at it. We're going to have to clear all this stuff out of here. And I was thinking, well, great, I'm fasting. I fasted chicken fingers, and this is what I'm sitting in front of. You know what God said to me? He said, eat. He says, because if you allow me to do in your life and trust me and humble yourself, I will take you to places and give you things you can never think, ask, or imagine. Eat, because I got the finest. And I was fighting, because I knew what I had. I knew what God wanted for my life, but I knew what I wanted for my life. And what James is trying to say is you don't realize that you're actually fighting against the tension of what God is trying to do in your life, because you think you're something you're not. You think you're pushing into something. But I'm gonna give you a little word here that I hope will encourage you. If it's not God's desire, you don't want it. If it's not his, you think you want it, but you don't. If you're a Christian, at some point in your life where you, you had a, a moment where things fell apart in your life or you felt like you needed God and you had a humble moment. So how do we move from that humble moment to where we're at? I don't know. That's a question you're going to have to answer. But Romans 10, 9, what does it say? It says that if you confess, everybody say confess, with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be absolutely 100%, no questions asked, you will be saved, right? Confess is an acknowledgement. So it's saying at some point in your life, if you're a Christian, you confessed that Jesus Christ was Lord, meaning you humbly submitted yourself to his authority, you submitted yourself to his kingship, you submitted yourself to his plans for your life, you submitted yourself to his calling, you submitted yourself to following him wholly, purely, wholeheartedly, and so if you're not there now, something has moved. I'm not talking about being a believer in Jesus. I'm talking about being 100% sold out, committed, blood-bought, sanctified, saved, redeemed, and walking in his goodness. Somebody has moved, and it wasn't God. Why? Because we begun to think that we know what we know, and what we know is as good as what God knows, and we think that we know what God knows because it's what we know because our pride won't let us see that it's not what God said. You feel me? This is what James is trying to communicate to the church. He's saying, you started somewhere, but you've, you've moved you moved. I think as a pastor, the one thing that helps me the most is realizing that I don't know everything that our church needs. I can't preach. You can't just say, pick this place in the gospel, start preaching it. No, I need to study the scripture. I don't really care if I tell you what you need to hear. What you need to hear is what the scripture intended to say. What did the author write it for? Why did he or she, why, why did they write it? 
What was it about their story? His or her story? What's it about their story? Why did the author write this? That's what I need to help you understand. I don't need you to understand what I want you to hear. You need to understand what the author meant when they wrote it in the gospel because that thing is never changing. You don't need to hear me. You need to hear from the Lord. And my point is, when you start to live your life like people don't need you, they need to hear the God that you serve, you take all the stress off your life of being the perfect replica of what you think Jesus was. So God's not asking you to be Jesus. He said, be like Jesus. And so what I'm trying to help you understand is that James is writing a passionate plea to the church, and he's telling the Jews, you've got to get this right, because if you don't, everything is going to fall apart. You almost hear like Post Malone, like, ooh, I fall apart, right? I hear that every time I read this scripture. But here's the continual answer in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It says, then, and this is after Solomon built a temple. David was this undefeated king, this warrior. Solomon, his son, builds a temple, this trillionaire king. And then Solomon goes to God. And this is what God says. After all your temples are built, after all the money is spent, if my people who are called by my name will humble, everybody say humble, and pray and seek, and then they'll turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and restore their land. So when you're humble, that's the starting point. And after you're humble, then you'll begin to pray. And after you're humble and you begin to pray, then you'll begin to actually seek, which means now I'm really looking for something. I'm not just praying because I need it. I'm seeking the face of God. I'm leaning into what he has. And after I'm seeking it, then I'm going to turn from the wickedness, from my addictions, from the things that are holding me back. I'm going to have the power and feel the, the flow of God in my life. And it says, and then God can do it because now... I've, all those things that are tried to hold on to me are being released. So how do we do this? Well, humbled means to be submitted. So what is the Bible telling us? It means we have to humble ourselves because humility is the only way that we live in God's desires and not on our own. It's the only way. Now you might say, well, how do I do that? Well, I'm glad that you asked because the scripture tells us how. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, it says, Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. And we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. Now, I want to pause here for a minute because when I was studying for this, I really feel like this is a part that somebody's going to have to struggle with because you can't really go to God with bold confidence because you feel guilty. Because the scripture says if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. So those of you who are sitting here today and you don't feel like you can go to God with bold confidence, it's because the guilt and shame in your life has identified you and you're not allowing God to show you that you're a son or daughter of the king and you don't feel that. You hear it and you believe it for others, but you struggle so hard to believe it for yourself. And then you wonder why you can't get this place in humility. It's because pride is nothing but a cover-up for insecurity. And you don't feel good enough to approach his throne. That's not humility because you don't feel good enough. That's actually not trusting God that he is good enough. So I thought you don't understand. No, 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 I understand. But that's not humility because you don't. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And what the scripture is saying is if you don't feel guilty, you can come with bold confidence. And the Bible says there's no shame or condemnation in Christ Jesus. So what it's telling us is that when you really are locked into God and he's your identity, It'll redo those feelings of shame and realize it ain't about me anyway. And in Philippians chapter two, I love it. It says, for God is working in you. Everybody say you. Giving you. Everybody say you. The desire and the power and do what pleases him. Now, I want to read this again together and I want you to replace the word you with me. For God is working in me. Giving me the desire and power to do what pleases him. So what the scripture tells me is if I don't feel guilty, I can come to God with a bold confidence and then he's gonna actually put the power in me to do what I need to do to take care of business in my life and to walk in the humility that he's designed for me because it's the humility that I actually find the peace. See, James is just trying to help people see the basics of Christianity. He's trying to, he's imploring them saying, listen, I understand that the church is powerful but it's losing some of its zest because you're, you're, you're starting to, to wage war with this physical and the world and you're starting to, you like the money that you have, you like your success and you're allowing the world to determine your pace. You're allowing the world to determine whether or not you're gonna walk in humility. James chapter uh, four, we're gonna get to in a second but I wanna ask you a question. How many of you have ever needed a haircut an oil change, need your grass mowed, house cleaned, and you put it off. Anybody? Okay. My barber, when I walk in, if it's been a while, he'll be like, hey, bro, I was wondering where I'm going to see you, man. You, look, you need a haircut. I'm like, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Always thinking about me, right? I was on vacation the last couple weeks, so when I come in, he's like, yeah, man, I knew you were going to be in this week. Why? Because he knew that your boy was going to look pretty rough if I didn't get a haircut in time. But how many of you, when you were sitting at your house, and you look in the mirror, and you're like, oh, man, you need a haircut. Past bad. Like, it's 
real bad. And then when you look in the mirror and you see that, you get mad at your barber that he hadn't come by the house to cut your hair. Or your stylist. You're like, where is he or she? I cannot believe they never knocked on my door once knowing that I make an appointment every three and a half weeks and they have not knocked on my They haven't come to my house. No. What do you have to do? You have to call, make an appointment, wait for your appointment, sit down, let them do the business. And if for some of y'all it's more business, and a couple hundred dollars it's more business, then, then can you believe as you leave you got to pay them? And after you pay them, you go home with less than what you came with, and you're out money too. Right? How many of y'all have ever been in your house, and you see your grass, and you're like, my goodness, this needs mowed. I'm going to have to bail hay. There's no way that it's going to be mowed. Y'all ever felt like this? Right? If you're in an apartment, don't leave. Just stay forever. Be a, a renter your entire life. That is great financial advice for those of you who hate mowing. But you're in your house, and you look out, and you're like, I cannot believe the grass is this high. I am so frustrated. You know there's a landscaper that's cutting your neighbor's yards. He ain't stopped by to cut yours. Now, you never paid him. You never asked him to cut your grass, but you can't believe that nobody has taken the initiative to come to your house when they knew that you're busy, your life is busy, you have four kids, you're pastoring a church, you're coaching baseball and football, and they didn't have the audacity to offer to cut your grass. Y'all are laughing because this is comical, right? Now, how many, let me ask you this. How many of y'all, and uh, we'll go with Pastor John, your 1978 Kia that needs an oil change, right? Okay, my bad. 1986 Kia that needs an oil change. And you're like, man, this thing needs an oil change because the, the, the oil meter don't work, but it just smells. And it's... And like Newport News is a fog when I drive. I know it needs an oil change. Now, how many of you have sat in your house knowing you need an oil change, and you're frustrated that your mechanic has never once called you to remind you to come by your house? You're like, I cannot believe my boy never once called and said, hey, you need an oil change. Does he not know I'm busy? He is a mechanic. He's got nothing else other than my car to worry about. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all don't ever think that about your barber. You never think that about your landscaper. You never think that about your mechanic. And I pray to God you never think that about somebody in your house that they need to be cleaning the house because it's dirty. If you do, you will get divorced fast. And you should be because you're ignorant. Right? If you don't like it, clean it. So why do we get irritated with God when things are falling apart, when the Bible is giving us clear instruction on how not to make it fall apart? We sit there and be like, I don't know, God, is that life is just tough. I cannot believe the things that are happening. He's given us the remedy with humility and how to approach him. But maybe, maybe it's just we don't want the freedom. The reality is maybe we like the addictions. Because that addiction is the thing that brought us through the childhood trauma. Feeling sorry for ourselves is what's brought us through not having to take responsibility for growing through a situation. Blaming a family member is the thing that's kept us from having to take responsibility for being any part of the problem. Blaming our spouse has made it feel like I've been done wrong instead of I've had a part in the wrongdoing. Blaming our kids and their dad that's a jerk is the reason they're jerks, not because I have a jerk tendency to me. You see, what happens is that we don't blame people in our lives for things that we're responsible for, but we blame God because we don't want to be responsible. We don't want to walk in humility. And I think that if we looked in the mirror and just told ourselves, you don't want to be humble, so be an arrogant jerk and accept the consequences, you say, well, that's kind of... No, no, no. You're either humble or you're not. There's no, well, he's kind of a humble guy. What does that mean? Well, he's nice when he's not coaching. So wait, things that aren't competitive? Like, that's not humility? You see what I'm saying? You either walk in humility or you don't. God's given us the remedy. So if you don't like it, change it. Go to him with bold confidence. And don't be the one who's in the middle of gossips and quarrels and backbiting and fighting. And in James chapter 4, verse 7, he goes on and he says he's, he's going to give even more remedy. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter. Gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. 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 Humble yourselves means repentance. God, it's not saying what you're not. It's saying what he is. 
You see, we get this thought of, well, God, I'm awful. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with cocaine. God, I'm, I'm struggling with another woman who's not my wife. Oh, God, I'm, I'm struggling with identity crisis, and I'm trying to redo my body to make me feel valuable, but I still don't feel valuable. No, that's, that's, you don't have to throw yourself under this bus of, of Holy Spirit repentance. No, it's saying, God, I need you because I'm broken, and I need you to fill me with what you are. Repentance isn't telling him everything that you're not. It's telling him everything that he is and how you need those things in your life. Resist the devil, flee temptation, come close to God means worship, wash your hands, means withdrawing from evil and sin. The things in your life that are entangling you. Purify your heart, just talk about an inner purification. Mourning means our recognizing our immortality. It means grieving and then humble yourselves. Because this is the reality. God will lift up what we bow down. If you put your life in front of him and you physically bow in front of God and you know that's the position of your heart, he will lift you up to a place that you never thought was possible. I've seen it over and over and over. To humble simply means what it says, to place yourself under. You know what I love about Jesus? He never once talked about his authorities, even when he was killed by them. And we think that we're Christians and we can speak of authority in our life We think we have a spiritual understanding of what the presidency should be doing because we know Jesus. But yet Jesus never said he had the understanding even though he was Jesus. Why? Because he knew in order to understand authority, you first had to know how to submit to it. The crisis of the politics in our churches have nothing to do with politics that are different today. It has everything to do with people that think they're God and that they know what everybody else should be doing. Parents, can I give you one piece of advice? Don't talk about any authority in front of your kids unless you're talking good. It's hard to expect your kids to honor authority that you have when you don't honor the authority that's above you. It's not work. It doesn't work like that. You say, we don't understand what they did. I'm pretty sure I understand. They killed Jesus. He never dishonored them. Never dishonored authority. Why? Because he understood humility meant I'm placing myself under and submitting. You will not submit to God if you can't submit to authority on earth. You're telling me you're going to submit to authority in your life when you can't submit to authority that you actually see? You're going to submit to authority that you can't see when you can't submit to authority that you can? It doesn't work like that. It's not the way that it works. And Jesus was a model. And James is trying to tell people, you can't humble yourselves when you're trying to compete with what people look at as successful and great. You've got to humble yourselves before God and he'll lift you up in a place you can't imagine. I love what 1 Peter 5 says. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. At the right time, he'll lift you up in honor. Humble yourselves. And I love how he said mighty power of God. Matthew chapter 23 said, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. That meaning God's doing, he's doing all of this. Have you ever solved a marriage problem without an apology? Don't raise your hand. Don't do it. You ever solved a marriage problem without an apology? The problem is if you're the one raising your hand, you probably were the one who solved the problem and didn't apologize. And that means somebody wasn't seen. Because even if you were right, you could say, hey, Say, yeah, you're right. You say, hey, I'm sorry if I didn't see you or I'm sorry if I said something that was offensive or, hey, I, I repent if I came across like I was trying to be, belittle you or I, at any point. If there's an argument, it's always okay to humble yourself. Submit yourself to that marriage and say, hey, I, I repent if I said anything. Because what happens is you say something and you're right and then your spouse remembers that but it hurt. They don't realize it hurt the way that they think it hurt because everything was solved. But a month later, you have another argument and that little piece comes back out. Now they're hurt and it's multiplied. You see, what repentance does is it says, hey, we're equal and I just want to tell you I'm sorry if I said anything. I used, to, I used to always think that winning fights in my marriage would be like this Crown Victoria love of life. I'm a competitor, so I want to win at everything. What I realized is when I won in marriage, nobody won. When me and my wife would argue and I'd win, like, yeah, because I, I don't know if it's just my marriage, but my wife, she just can out-argue me, and she's smarter in every way, and I fumble over my words, I get nervous, my face sweats, I just get so overwhelmed because I know that this woman is going to completely waylay me. I, there's nothing I can do to compete with her, right? And she's not an argumentative person. She's smarter than me. It's that simple. 
But what I found in our marriage is the greatest way we can just say, hey, I'm sorry if I didn't see you, because I love you. And I, I'm just really sorry if I, my pride got out of control. Or when she tells me, don't, don't, you can't say that to the kids. I'm like, what do you think? I'm the dad. I can say what I want. I'm like raising my kids. That's the way it used to be. Now I'm like, hey, I'm sorry. I, I should have said that. Why? Because I recognize that I'm submitting myself to our marriage. And it, it's team. Submit myself to my wife in that way. Humility starts with repentance. It's easy to get pride and confidence confused. Anybody feel like that? But that's unless you understand humility. Because pride says it's me and confidence says it's God in me. We want to say so many things and it can be exhausting trying to figure out what's God and what's from us. Unless we walk in humility. You see, we fight, scrap, beg, borrow, steal, undercut, backbite, gossip, and swindle to get what we want. When it's God, we draw close to him and he'll give us the desires and what we never knew we wanted. Being nasty to one another, tearing apart those around us, critical spirits, harsh words, slander, they're not the norm for those who have placed God as their desire. They're not. It's just, it might be the norm in your world, but it's not the norm for people who are walking and humility. The civil war that rages in, in all of us isn't getting close to a ceasing or a surrender. It's not going to be won once and for all on this side of heaven. No, the victory in that civil war is when God's desires are our desires. When he's our main focus in the spotlight and the first desire is when we start to win. God's desires in us they're going to follow our desires for them. If it's not God's desire, I promise you, you don't want it. And God's going to lift up what we bow down. He will lift you up in honor with your kids and your family. Those people you're praying for that you think you have to make it happen. He will lift you up in honor when you submit to him. Some of you today aren't struggling because you're a mess. You don't have it figured out. You're struggling because you forgot who the master is. He doesn't need you to be the master. You say, well, how do I know if I'm humble? A byproduct of humility is how you treat people. Every person. But the only way to humility is repentance. Last August, I was on the road for a couple of weeks. And I was in Missouri, and I would come back to Virginia and for the first six years of our church at the time, we're about ready to, to celebrate our eighth, our eighth year this September. And for the first six years, I was involved in everything. In fact, coming into the season of COVID, we were online for a full year. And so we knew that was a part of our calling. We got to establish another campus and our online is a, we always say we're an online church with a physical location because our online campus is such a huge part for our serve days. We have people in Florida and California and all over that were a part of that from our online community and we believe in it. Because I always tell our church, we can get it in the pocket of people all over the world. This is a passion. It's part of our calling. So when I came back from Missouri last August, we had been meeting about seven months in person again. And God spoke so clearly to me and he says, I want you to preach the gospel. And like you, I'm probably thinking, well, that's what I've been doing. He said, no, no, this is where I want you to sit. I want you now to stay in this lane and preach the gospel. And I knew that I'd been in the day-to-day of the church for the last six years, and I was wondering, what did that even look like? And now I find that when I try to get back in that lane, all I do is clog up this beautiful water slide with a bunch of bricks whenever I try to put my hand back in the day-to-day because I'm not, quite frankly, cut out for it. There are people that are a lot better at it that have a call and a mission and a vision. And God said, just preach my gospel. Brandon, what I have for you, I need you to pour yourself fully into I need you to pour into it. Pastor John could attest to, it's hard to let something go that you've had so much control in. And it's not that I didn't want to, because my vision was always to be the leadership and the vision of the church and to be the voice and to do things that would help enhance the church. And now God was asking me to do that. And it was a season for me of surrender. Because as much as you think, well, you'd work your whole life in ministry for that, and now things are great, and and it's overflowing and all this stuff. It, It sounds great, but it's hard whenever your identity has been tied to something for so long to now change your function. 
And so I'd work out in my garage and every day I made it a practice through the end of the year. I would be sweating, I would feel old and out of shape and my body would be telling me no and I would stay in there and I would do whatever I had to do and as soon as I was done working out, sometimes as soon as that last rep got done, I would hit my knees every single day and I would lift my hands. And I just said this one line, I said, God, I am the servant and you are the master. Lead me and I will follow. But I didn't say that with the way of lead me, then I will follow. I said it as in, God, I need courage because I know you're leading me somewhere. And I'm not going to use any excuse as to why I'm not going to follow. Every day I did that. I said, God, I'm your servant. You're my master. I guess in that, sometimes I'll say, I'm scared. This is something that you've given me that I've I've been so involved, I don't know how to lead like this other way. I guess when I was doing that, there's a part of me that was saying, God, I'm trusting you more now than ever because it's, it's giving you something back that you're going to multiply and you're giving me something that's going to be multiplied and I'm not sure how to do this, right? I'm not sure how to give more authority when I feel like I've given all authority. I'm not sure how to lead better when I felt like I've led with everything I have and every day just hit my knees, God, I am the servant in you. Looking back, it was just repentance. Say, God, I don't have it figured out. I'm a sinner. I'm nothing without you, but you are everything. And with you, I am unstoppable. I am anointed. I am appointed. I am sanctified, redeemed, relieved, blood-bought, and burden-free because of your son. And I am the servant to the greatest king and the greatest master, the great I am, the one who goes before me. And today I choose to surrender. Maybe that's what we need. Just repentance. I love what 1 John chapter 3 says. It says, in all who have this eager expectation, meaning if you love God, if you yearn for God, if you want to know of God, it says they'll keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Pure means you're unadulterated from any other substance. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it said, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. And love, it says, There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. And it says, But worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow, it lacks repentance. Worldly sorrow, you're, you're, you're sad you got caught. But you're not sorry that God's heart's hurt. Mom and dad, I just want to take a quick moment because what I'm trying to tell you is right now you feel like you're in control because your kids are in your house, but I'm telling you your habits, they're adopting. And right now, if you can't get off your phone long enough to talk to your kids, don't be upset when they, you call them in 10 years and they can't get off of theirs. You have a snapshot to develop your family. What you don't do now, you will reap the benefits of later. It's a biblical principle. What you don't have time for now, they won't have time for later. When you see little Johnny and Sarah and you know they need to reach into the heart of God, they're not going to know how because you never showed them. They're not going to know how because you talked and you went to church, but you never were the church. You want God to move so badly in your family and you got him in church and you're doing the right things and we talk about God at home, but you're not walking in a place of repentance where they're watching the spirit of God flood over your soul. They're not watching it. And I'm asking you, mom and dad, today, would you align yourself with God in humility and walk in repentance, not saying what you're not? but celebrating who he is. Will you stand with me this morning? One thing I love about my boys is that we have, I have great men and women around them in their life. And so they get to see God all the time in different people. And I love that because they need that. You know what I mean? They need that. But what I love is that my boys are starting to experience God not from what dad's stories are and the stories of mom and dad, but they're starting to experience God in their own one-on-one -on -one experiences. And my kids will tell me things that they're being prayed for and like what God spoke to them so clearly. And the thing that I know as a dad, they can't live off of my stories. They're going to live off of theirs. 
they had to live off of their experiences. You know, I don't try to live my life like I'm a dad or a husband or a pastor. I gave that up a long time ago. You know why? Because I'm not capable. And I felt like the Lord started to stir my heart and say, Brandon, I just need you to be a son. And everything will flow out of what you have in me. When your desire is me, everything else will flow in the right direction. I think for some of you, you feel guilty today because you feel like you just can't hold it all together. And what the Lord is saying is you've never been asked to. Will you just be a daughter of the king? I feel like today he's saying to somebody, just be my daughter. Just let me be your dad. Let me love you in a way that will change your life. Let me love you in a way that you never felt it from your father. Let me love you in a way that you never understood. Can I just be your dad today? Because that's all I need from you, is to let me love you. Because what flows out of you from me will be something that you could never harness or motivate or create on your own. I feel like there's men in here today. You've not had a father, or you've had a father and he's gone, and you miss him so bad, and there's a grief. And I'm trying to tell you today, there is a heavenly father that is saying today, you put your desire in me. Let me be your desire, and I will do things through your life and your heart that no earthly father could ever conjure. The goal of an earthly father has always been the same, to lead us to the heavenly father. And whether or not your father was good at that, you're here now. And God has used people and places and things to align your life. The goal of an earthly father is to help us understand the love of our father in heaven. And I'm trying to help you understand today, can we just allow the kindness of God lead us to repentance? You were prized, and today you need to realize God has never had a bad thought about you. God has never been disappointed in you. God has never been mad at what you are because he's a good father that knows you can't get what you need in your life without him. He is the king. Jesus Christ died on a cross so that you could stand here today and receive the grace of a great father. He died so that you could live. Jesus Christ died so that we could choose humility and have power, so that we could choose humility and have functionality that goes far beyond anything we're capable of doing. You have a savior that died because he sees you. And today, can we choose to put our desire in him and only him and let him take the burden of our life to do in us what only he can. Would you close your eyes with me and just lift your hands to the heavens? I want to say a prayer with those today who may not know Jesus Christ, and maybe this is your first time, but I'm going to ask us as a church, can we say it as a church family? Can we say this prayer along with those who, who are coming to know Christ today? Can we say, dear Jesus, we repent, we confess our sin, and we submit to you. We believe that Jesus died for our sins, but he lives today. We surrender all of our dreams, all of our desires, and all that we are to you. We love you. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. And if today's message helped or inspired you, feel free to share it with someone. If after today's message you have questions, need help, or just want somebody to talk to or process with, just shoot Lifehouse a text to 757-690-2401. For more information about Lifehouse, you can visit us at lifehouseonline.church. That's lifehouseonline.church.